If you would now, please open up with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 22. We're getting closer and closer to the culmination of this sermon series, God's Power to Save, the Life of Elijah. You know, I think y'all probably know where it's going to end, right? With a chariot of fire. I hope you, you're at least thinking that way. Uh, but we're not there yet. Uh, there are some verses that come before that. Uh, some that actually, as we're looking at a sermon series in Elijah, we might run the risk of saying our throwaway verses or something like that. Uh, but I would warn you and caution you as a minister of word and sacrament not to ever talk about the Bible in a throwaway manner. For all of God's word is beneficial to his people. And we can see that this morning. As you're opening up to 1 Kings 22, the last part of it, uh, if you were looking for a few summary Bible verses uh, to define the doctrine that is housed in our text this morning, it would definitely be Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I'm certain that y'all remember when we did our sermon series on, on Philippians, not your mama's hospitality, all right? So y'all know those Bible verses and remember my exposition of them. But if you don't, let me just remind you, it says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here it comes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Which one is it? Do we work out our own salvation or is God the one doing the work? As you heard, and I'd encourage you to go back to Philippians 2, 12 and 13, you actually see both. It's not an either or. It's a both and. God is obviously the primary entity in the work. And at the same time, his people are not passive, but active in the process. We catch some of how that activity works in today's Bible passage that I'm going to be working us through. Uh, uh, 1 Kings chapter 22, this last part, quote-unquote throwaway verses, right? Verses 41 through 53. Here's the main point. And you see it summed in that Philippians 2 section. Here's the main point. We don't control future generations, all right? We don't control it. That's God's realm. But we do contribute to future generations. We don't control future generations. That's God. But we do contribute. That's God's design. We'll see that this morning as we open up his word. Before we do this most important part, the reading of God's word, let's pray that the Holy Spirit would pierce us like he says he will. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, make this reading powerful to save, powerful to convict, powerful to comfort, and all in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is 1 Kings chapter 22, starting with verse 41. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhi. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away. 
and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? From the land he exterminated the remnant of the male cult prostitutes who remained in the days of his father Asa. There was no king in Edom. A deputy was king. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they did not go, for the ships were wrecked at Ezion Geber. Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat was not willing. And Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. The grass withers, the flowers fade. This word, the word of God, it stands and remains forever. That is why it is good and beneficial for us. We will have it, in other words, in heaven. That means we would do well to pay attention now. Remember, we don't control future generations, okay? That's God's realm. But we do contribute to future generations. That's God's design. Here are two points to help us to see this. Number one, contribution in seeking to do right. Number two, contribution in seeking to do wrong. First, we see a summation of the Judean king Jehoshaphat seeking to do right in verses 41 through 50. Recall with me that Jehoshaphat was the ruler of the southern kingdom of Judah. I've said this a couple times with kind of context in previous sermons, but just let, it's good for us to remember that Judah is the kingdom housing the bloodline of King David, which is also the bloodline of King Jesus. Generally speaking, Judah found itself more faithful than its northern counterpart, Israel, where Ahaziah ruled in place of his father, Ahab, who has taken up uh, some of our time, right? We've seen Ahab as God has recorded and sought fit to record some of his life and actions. This general principle is true of our text this morning, that, that Judah is righteous and that Israel uh, has fallen short of that righteousness. We, we see this playing out. A righteous and noble Jehoshaphat juxtaposed against a sinful and shameful Ahaziah. And this is where our main point starts to bear itself out as well. We, that is humanity, not just fathers and mothers, okay, we, that is humanity, contribute to future generations. This is God's ordinary design. Remember, humanity can't control future generations. That, that is kind of make them wise or make them uh, uh, righteous or, or make them Christians maybe is one way that we might think about it. We, we can't make anybody do anything on the spiritual realm. It, it's God's domain. And, and Jesus himself expresses this explicitly when he comes upon that man born blind 
in John chapter 9. This is just a good example. It's a, not necessarily a stretch, but you'll see what I mean. The blind man's blindness, by the way, from birth, right? This, just born blind. It was not because of his parents, but it wasn't even because of him. If you recall what Jesus said, whether righteous or sinful, Jesus stipulates that these things happen for God's own purposes of revelation. There's something more going on and it's not you, right? Jesus is saying in no less terms, you're not the center of the universe. God is. And he's showing you something about himself, even through the trials and tribulations that you find yourself in. But the same is true for righteousness and sinfulness, we see that and have seen that in the life of Ahab, for instance. Why are we reading about this guy, right? It's because God is revealing something of himself through his actions against and, and toward and for and around this king, Ahab. With that in mind, and on the other hand, even as we're looking at God's control, contribution to future generations is also highly biblical. One example is Deuteronomy chapter 6. We see this, and a lot of times we quote it for a lot of different reasons, but one of the family kind of quotes that we get is, well, you should be telling your children about the Word when you're walking on the way, when you're laying on the couch, when you're laying in your bed, when you're standing up. When you're sitting down, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you should be talking about God and his word. You should be, if I might say this, contributing to your children's spiritual well-being, to the next generation's spiritual well-being, speaking of the Lord and his work. And so we see Jehoshaphat in verse 43. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you're wondering, who's Asa, his father? Who, who is this guy? If you find him in the scriptures, Asa, Jehoshaphat's father, he put away the detestable idols that were found in his country. He repaired the altar of the Lord. Be like repairing the church windows, right? He, he repaired it to where we could come in at the wintertime. He, he did something that fixed the church where we could worship the Lord more appropriately. He, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He sacrificed to the Lord in worship because of the Lord's own promises to him. Because God sent a prophet and said, Asa, if you obey me, I will bless you. And Asa said, okay. <laughs> he walked in faith just like Abraham did, just like David did. This king did the same thing, and therefore he covenanted with the Lord on behalf of his people. That is, he made a promise with consequences. He said before God, Lord, let us do this or strike us dead, and the people said, Amen. They were ready and willing to serve God that they might witness what God was going to do through them. The people rejoiced at the practice. In all of this, Asa sought to do right. And so we see in our text this morning, Jehoshaphat does the same. There is a contribution from his father to him, a continuation of generation, an example that has been set. But perhaps you noticed as well, humanity is more complicated than just righteous or just sinful. Asa, Jehoshaphat's father, he also struck a deal with God's enemies. He punished a prophet for speaking God's word. And at the very end, as he lay on his deathbed, he sought the comfort of science over God himself. 
Now, to be clear, Jehoshaphat does not inherit his father's sin. He just sins like his father. All right? There's not an inheritance where, uh, you know, my dad is a sinner in this area, and because of that, you know, I've got his guilt. You know, God is going to give that guilt like an inheritance, just like you might get money or a house or, or something else, right? That's not how it works. But there is contribution, and so we see that Jehoshaphat's sins look like his father's. So in the time of Jehoshaphat, you'll notice high places, that is, places where false gods were worshipped, well, they weren't taken away all the way. A deal was struck with sinful king Ahab. That was the content of last week's proclamation of the word. And more than that, he sought gold at the cost of his people's lives. Right? Those ships crashed and were broken into pieces and people died because of it. Humanity is complicated. It's even convoluted when we are put onto paper. And we see that here on the paper of God's word, but you can see it in your own life as well, right? Uh, if, if you put the, you know, sometimes people say, well, what are the pros and cons? Let's see what, what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses, right? If you're really true to yourself, you know, sometimes you might say, well, I don't want to do this anymore. That's not a good practice, you know, and, and, and you begin to see yourself and, and it's more convoluted than you might think. Your strengths are sometimes your weaknesses. Your weaknesses actually turn out to be strengths and it, it, it's just more complicated and it becomes very tricky. What is important for us to see here in the word is not just righteousness or just sinfulness. What's important to see is the trajectory because even as the Judean king Jehoshaphat is seeking to do right, there is this sinful king of Israel, King Ahaziah, who is clearly seeking to do wrong in verses 51 through 53. Let's start with verse 52 just so you can see what I mean. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Let's go through those three real quick. Ahab, who was Ahaziah's father, he hated God's word. He killed God's people. He established a false religion, cut deals with God's enemies, was greedy, grumpy, and controlled by his emotions. And that's just going back a few chapters, right? There's more. And you can find it even in God's word. Jezebel, Ahaziah's mother, operated in the same way, but with even more maliciousness, greed, and hate built into all those things I just mentioned about Ahab. And if you're wondering about Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took all of God's promises in Revelation, he warped them for his own preservation and power, and he set the northern kingdom of Israel on the downward spiral of destruction that we see playing out right here. That was Jeroboam and his sin and his trajectory which is why the Lord has seen fit to place him here alongside father and mother of Ahaziah. And so we see verse 53. He, that is Ahaziah, served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. We don't control future generations. That's God's realm but we do contribute to future generations. That is God's design. We see this blatantly in Jehoshaphat and Ahaziah 
And really, we see this in the Judean and the Israelite line of kings. Tra uh, generational trajectory. As you read 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Samuel, remember that. Generational trajectory. Don't just look at Babylon's destruction. Don't just look at the destruction of, of Israel or of Jerusalem and Judah. Don't, don't look at that. only that. See that line of kings and what God is revealing in that of sin and of belief and how different they really are. Again, and remember, humanity cannot control the next generation, but contribution, it's absolutely on the table. And this forces a next question for us. What contribution are you giving to the next generation? What trajectory is being set by you as an individual, by y'all in your family units, and by us as an institution here at Centennial ARP Church? Now, stick with me on this. This one was hard for me. Uh, these are tough applications, but God is good. God does provide comfort alongside of conviction. Uh, just a, perhaps it was only me. This was quite convicting in my own life as I prayed and prepared to begin these things. Before answering the question, it's very important for us to establish a baseline, okay? So, so what is our contribution? What trajectory are we setting? Well, we've got to have the baseline. And the baseline is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel, okay? That's the baseline. And do you believe in that? That God would send his son, right? It's Christmas time, or let me take that back. Thanksgiving hasn't happened yet. I almost got shot. Uh, let's be careful, okay? Uh, Thanksgiving hasn't come, but Christmas is coming, okay? All right, and we can be thankful for that at Thanksgiving, that Christmas is coming. And we celebrate what? The Lord Jesus' birth. It is the momentous moment where God, with an exclamation point, boom, places himself here. Emmanuel, God with us. And so now we have God who has taken on flesh, okay? And so now it's God and man. And Jesus is living this perfect life, not for himself, because he's God. He's living it and showing it to us that he might sacrifice for us a sacrifice that's needed because we're in trouble without it. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we are in this God's wrath. However, because Jesus came, and because he lived that life, and because he died that death, and because he killed death and rose again, because he rose up into heaven and is praying for you right now because of this, and because of him coming again even, we are saved. It's the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. But as an individual, you right here, right now, can you articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ without hesitation? If you were in a room just with me, in my office, okay, so there's no nerves, right? It's not, it's not in front, not from the pulpit, just me and you. What's the gospel? Go. Would you be able to do it? Without hesitation, would you be able to tell me the gospel of Jesus? I'm not asking if you believe in the gospel of Jesus. I'm asking if you can articulate it. 
in Bible-believing, let me emphasize that, Bible-believing 21st century churches, okay? So exclude those that don't believe in the Bible, okay? So hear that well. In Bible-believing 21st century churches, I, myself, am not as fearful about the belief of God's people. I believe that they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and I'll see them in heaven. But I am afraid that they cannot articulate what it is they believe. I am nervous if they can speak the gospel when asked. Here's a silly kind of illustration of that, but I think it's actually a signifier as well. Uh, I have the great privilege and opportunity to be the chair of, uh, of this commission for our denomination. It's our presbytery, which is the local churches. I have the privilege uh, to be the chair who is examining young men, well, younger, I'll say, younger men to come in and to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to proclaim. They're there. They've done seminary. They've done their study. And this is the first question our commission asks them every time during the oral exam. Tell me the gospel. What's the gospel of Jesus Christ? And every single time, they trip up and they fall on their face and they stumble over their words. And these are the men who are supposed to be the gospel preachers. But it's not because they do not believe. And it's not because they do not have the tools. It's simply because they've never been asked the question and never been asked to say it out loud. Can you articulate the gospel out loud, verbally? It is very important to the continuation of our faith, the contribution that we have to tell our children, to tell our people on the way and sitting down and standing up if we can't talk. What are we doing? Can you articulate the gospel of Jesus? It's very important. Try it out in your families. Yeah, it's no big deal, and it'll feel awkward, you know, okay, Let's do it. You know, it'll feel uncomfortable, but it's so good for us spiritually. Please, with your family members, try to do this and see where we are. What is our trajectory? Speaking of families, in your family, what trajectory are y'all on? What takes precedent in your life? What do you talk about the most in your families? What do you act like? And is it different than what you act like when you're out in public? Today... When you get home, if you told your spouse or your children or your grandchildren or whomever that the family was going to gather together to pray just for a few minutes, would that be a foreign concept? If you were just going to gather, hey, y'all, let's just gather together. I'm going to read some Bible verses, just a couple, three or four Bible verses. Would that be a foreign concept? Would it make the family feel uncomfortable your family's response is a signifier of your own trajectory and contribution to spiritual things in life. On to the third thing, institution. Considering the institution, and for us at Centennial, what is the trajectory of this church? Have you asked that? What is it? Are we desiring to see people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if so, are we contributing to that trajectory? Or are we contributing to something different? Have you ever asked that question? I'm not saying it's yes or no. I'll leave it in your hands. In all of these things, 
us as individuals, our families, our church, trajectory matters. But we spend hardly any time thinking and talking on these things. Today, remember that we don't control future generations. Remember, that's God's domain. But we do contribute to those future generations. And that's God's design. What you do matters. Who you are matters, which should raise our sobriety, excitement, fulfillment, and rejoicing in a God who allows us to have skin in the game. But are you taking it seriously today? Consider Jehoshaphat and Ahaziah, both of the kings, following in their father's footsteps. That is explicitly told to us in God's word. Trajectory matters. Consider them. What is your trajectory and what does it signify about your belief? And as you consider these things, this is the moment, right? Uh, let's transition from conviction to comfort. Because as you consider these things, do not forget the Lord Jesus Christ who has secured your salvation for you, who has done the work for you, who has changed your heart by the Holy Spirit and caused you to be born again, to allow you the power to put away sin, to put away shame, to put away embarrassment, and to move with boldness, courage, and strength towards God because he is going before you in the matter. Don't forget that because if you're like me, man, those applications are highly convicting and borderline offensive. But God goes before us and changes us and allows us to see that with sobriety and allows us to see it with excitement to be more like Jesus because we can and that is a gift given to us by the Holy Spirit. Consider these things. Renew your faith in the Lord Jesus today and, con and contribute, contribute well in righteousness as God has commanded us to. And watch God work. I say it a lot, but let's watch God work as we are convicted and comforted at the very same time. Pray with me and then let's sing together to this God. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the conviction in the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to be contributing to future generations, not seizing sinfully your control, for that is futility. But Lord, seeking rightly to do what you have called us to do, to praise you and to share your name and your work, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, at the same time confessing you are the one doing such work in our lives. God, thank you, thank you, thank you. And Lord, at the same time, help us, help us, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.